Hello, and welcome to the Church Newtown Square podcast. If we can serve you in any way, or if you'd like to learn more about our church family or the Acts 29 network, please visit us at churchnsq.org. That's C-H-V-R-C-H-N-S-Q.org. And now, let's listen in to today's teaching. A few years ago, Danae and I were uh, attending a, a wedding, and as usual, one of, the, uh, one of the participants in the ceremony came up and did a scripture reading. It's not uncommon to go to a wedding and hear a scripture reading, and the scripture reading was 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 13. Actually, it was when it starts talking about love, 4 through 8. Uh, this woman came up, and when she read, she said she wanted to share with us a definition of love that she thought was beautiful. And she said it was by Nicholas Sparks. <laughs> if, Nicholas Sparks, if you've seen The Notebook, I, it, was both a, it was both a humorous and just a sad moment for me. Because I sat there, in the, in, in, and I include this verse in our wedding ceremonies that I do, but I give a little bit more context to it. I, I desperately wanted to raise my hand and just say, um, excuse me, he didn't write that. Uh, Danae would have killed me. I couldn't blame, however, this woman because the picture of love, the definition of love in our generation, in our culture is so distorted. It's so based on human emotion and feeling and the self that what we see in movies like The Notebook or any, any Hallmark Christian special is what we believe love to look like. It's what we think love feels like, what actually it is. There is a love which is defined by the world, and then there is a love that is defined by God. One is a true love, one is a false love. Perhaps you've heard the phrase falling in love. Gary Chapman uh, is an author uh, and he wrote a few years ago in the early 90s something called the five love languages. Some of you may be familiar with this. There's a, a love language that each of us has, and he identifies five of them. But he makes the note that regarding human relationships, each of our basic emotional need is not to fall in love, the feeling of falling in love, but to actually be genuinely in love, to be genuinely loved by someone else, to know love that grows not out of feeling but out of reason out of thoughtfulness, out of choice. It is a decision to love someone, not just instinct. The experience of falling of love tends to catapult us into things that we do uh, into this, we get shot into this emotional orbit where we do things that we otherwise wouldn't normally do. And when we come back out of orbit, we look back and say, why, why did I do these things? Why did I say these things that I would never do normally? And after we come down from that orbit, uh, reality sets in, and then all of a sudden we realize that this falling in love becomes something where uh, it's not enough. We begin to see the disagreements that we have with one another, and then we feel like we're woefully stuck in a relationship that we desperately either uh, want to get out of, or we just resign ourselves to misery for the rest of our lives. The generation of our grandparents, my grandparents, decided that it was better to jump ship that 60% at this point, inside the church and outside of the church, of marriages fail in uh, what's called a no-fault divorce, in which we need not find any actual uh, cause. We just decide that we're not in love anymore, and we can just get a divorce, and we can break it off. 
second marriages and third marriages trend in the same direction. And unfortunately, we can experience and engage the local church in the same way. We can be particularly impressed with or we can experience something in the local church that has a significant and a true impact on us. We experience God in exciting ways. We experience the, the joy and the love of seeing Christ. But then what starts to happen is we live life with people and then we realize that they have flaws, that ministries have flaws, that things aren't as rosy and perfect as we thought they were. And then we get nervous and then what do we do? We get tempted to jump ship. We want to... We want to save ourselves the problem of not only being let down, but people seeing our own flaws. Charles Spurgeon quipped this. He said, if you find the perfect church, don't join it. You'll ruin it. We can fall in love with the spectacular, the excitement, the wonder of all that God is doing on any particular generation or any moment. And it is really easy to love God when things are exciting or when others are exciting or when there's lots of good things going on. But that is the, not the normal Christian life. The question is, can we love people? Can we love the local church, the family of God, all the good and all the bad, when it is not as exciting, when it's not as spectacular, when the flaws are exposed? When we, when we come together on a particular day, like today, why do we come together on this particular day, on a Sunday? Why do we do particular things like sing, like pray, dedicate children? Why are you here this morning listening to me preach the scriptures for a particular historical person, Jesus? Why are we here? We are here because I hope some of us, we love him. We've decided to come to do these particular things because we love God and we know that he loves us. And in worshiping him, we seek to love one another. It's all one big package. And our gathering to worship has a particular effect upon one another and also those who are attending who don't regularly worship God as we do. And so in the context here, Paul has written this chapter not because he decided to kind of take a side road. 12, 13, and 14 are one unit. It's one package. Paul didn't say, hey, you know what? I'm, gonna, you know, I'm thinking about love right now. Let me just insert this random chapter about love. No, it, it, is, it, is, it is because the Corinthian church forgot what it looked like to love one another. They have to root themselves in a definition of love that will not only help mature them, but also it will be a witness to the world around them that's looking inside and seeing what it is that the love of God really looks like. And so it is vitally important to think about what we do in worship, why we do it, and who it is that we're doing it for. What are the effects of our worship together what are the effects of our love for one another if we are rooted in that definition that Paul lays out for love? Because we do have an impact on one another. And in fact, for those who are visiting with us this morning, for those of you who might not even call yourselves believers or Christians, um, I would argue that it's probably the lack of love for one another inside the church that perhaps has caused you to be skeptical. But perhaps it's because our definition of love is skewered or it's it's off kilter or we haven't oriented ourselves really to truly what love is what is it that God calls us to and so this morning if you are uh, taking notes you've been here with us for the last few weeks I encourage you if you've not take a listen to the last few sermons the macro outline or the big outline of 12 13 and 14 Paul is saying look let's be open to the spirit he's, he's 
He's writing to a church that is gifted by the Holy Spirit. We are all gifted by the Holy Spirit. He's saying, be open to what God is going to do in your midst. But not only be open to the Spirit, but be others-centered. Think about the common good when you're using your gifts. And now we're at the point where he's saying, remember what the objective of these spiritual gifts are. It is love. And so what he'll do is he'll define for us this morning, he'll have us look at what is love, what is the overarching, uh, driving uh, principle that ought to orient everything else that we do. And then he'll say, here's how this plays out practically in orderly worship. And so that is kind of the flow of thought. But this morning I want you to, uh, uh, to look at three things. One, the priority of love. The priority of love. That love is greater than our gifts. Two, the pattern of love, which leads us and guides us and, and shapes our way of thinking and living. The pattern of love leads us and guides us in our way of thinking and living. And finally, be encouraged about the permanence of love. Permanence of love. And so because of the permanence of love, we hold on to our gifts and our positions very loosely because our relationships with one another are going to be permanent. And we hold on to that more tightly. The objective, Paul is saying, of being gifted by Jesus with the gifts of the Holy Spirit is that we might grow in love for God and for one another. And so as we grow in maturity, so also our love will grow in maturity. Look with me in verse 1, chapter 13. First, the priority of love. Love is greater than our gifts. He says, if I, he'll have this pattern, if I, but do not have, then I. It's a conditional statement. It's like, listen, if I have the ability to speak human or even angelic tongues but do not have love, then I am like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Something, something that's annoying, something that rings in your ear that you just want to stop. It is, it is the, the, the off-pitchness of something. It's, it's you love your child, but your child is sending everyone in that elementary school play off pitch and tone, and you're smiling while you're just wanting to hold your ears. Like, that's great, honey. Ugh. Or if I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and have all faith, so much so that I can move mountains, he's referring back to what Jesus taught, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions, if I give up even my body to be burned or to boast, that translation there is either to, to boast of giving over my body or some, some have said that it might be to be given over in martyrdom to be burned. But do not have love, I gain nothing. If I have a gift, but do not have love, then it doesn't matter. The struggle of almost every gifted leader that I have ever met or heard about or encountered is either deeply insecure or they overestimate their importance in life or their position. They're either trying to compensate for something they they feel very deeply insecure about or they just have no idea that they are not as important (laughs) as they think they are. Paul here is being extreme in his language to prove a crucial point. In verses 1 through 3, basically what he's saying is he's humbly trying to make it clear that some of them in this church have been given some really incredible spiritual gifts. They are truly a gifted church, and God has blessed them. And they may be starters on the all-star team. They may be lead actors on the stage, but there's really only one all-star. There's only one lead actor, and his name is Love. Its name is love. I say he because love is personified in the person of Jesus Christ. And Paul says that without love, none of our efforts matters. Paul makes an effort to list all of these upfront and popular gifts which were causing division. 
Those that have the upfront and the popular gifts, the ones that are seen the most, they're the loudest, they're the ones that have the most attention. They're the ones that most people uh, want to have because that seems to be the thing that people uh, are most impressed by. Those people, those upfront and popular gifted people are failing to use those gifts properly. They're not using it in love, and as a result, they are accomplishing the exact opposite of what it's meant to do, which is division. Love does not divide, love unifies. There's something to be gained in the service of Christ. What do we gain when we use our gifts correctly, upfront or otherwise? When we're not seen or whether we're seen, what do we gain when we use our gifts correctly? Because there is something to gain. What we gain is the love of God. We don't earn the love of God, but we gain the love of God. How do we gain the love of God? Through the love of our brothers and sisters. If I serve you in such a way that you feel loved by God and in return serve me in such a way that I feel loved by God, we have gained the love of God and we increase in our maturity of knowing what it is to be loved by God. There's something that we can gain in service to Christ. We gain the love of God and the love of our brothers and sisters. We may even, Paul says, by the way we act here, gain others in their love for God because of the way that we love one another. And so Paul lifts these, 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 these gifts, the gifts to speak, and he uses an extreme. Here there's some confusion here as whether or not there really is an angelic tongue. But uh, most commentators would say that in this context, Paul is just being hyperbolic. He's being extreme. He's like, even if I speak in a known language or even angelic tongues uh, and I don't have love, he's, he's taking it to the extreme. Even so, it's like, if I give my body to be burned... And I don't have love. He's, he is taking it to the full measure of its logical thought to highlight the importance of love. These are spirit-filled people who are genuinely gifted and they're genuinely being used by God. But what has happened is that their attitudes and their pride and their silly little divisions have caused others in the church to feel small and think small. They look at them and they think, man, these, these people really know how to worship. They really, they really know how to connect with God. They seem to have an intimate, they even pray a prayer language that they have a, a unique, intimate relationship with God. This guy's a gifted communicator. He's pretty talented. He teaches the word of God really well. And that person's a visionary. They've got big dreams for God. And this person's generous. Man, they, they use their wealth. They, they don't even have much, and they're so generous. They lay it all down for Jesus. I could never be like that. Does this sound familiar? Teachers, visionaries, people that are generous and giving, does it hit home for you a little bit to hear the fact that there are things that you see and you think, I could never be like that? Let me ask you a question. When was the last time that you searched for a sermon given by, um, what's his name, down the street, uh, about a, church's that, a church with a name that no one knows? Uh, have you ever listened to an average music list on Spotify with bands you don't really, I don't even really know, or read the book, How to Live a Very Average and Normal Christian Life Without Being Noticed by Anyone, by unknown pastor John Smith. Have you ever read that book? I'm sorry if I've, John Smith was the most average name I could think of, so I didn't, if I've offended you, I'm sorry, John. We are all, we are all driven or drawn to those gifts. And there's nothing wrong with being a gifted leader, visionary. There's nothing 
wrong with those. But it's when these gifts are indeed used, not for the gift of the church, but for the gift of self, that's where it all goes off the rails. And so as a church, Paul, through the Holy Spirit, gives us a pattern to look at so that we might, one, judge our leaders and say, I'm going to attend a church where the leadership in that church is living according to the pattern of love and the people are living according to the pattern of love because if they're not, then I'm not going to experience the maturity. I'm not going to grow in maturity. And so if any uh, time you feel a sense of this just selfishness and just self-aggrandizement or it's just self-glorification, then they're not living according to the pattern that is set for us here in First. Corinthians chapter 13. And this is why Paul is writing the letter, because they are in process. And this is good news, because all of us are in process. All is not lost. God gives grace upon grace upon grace to grow in maturity, even after we've failed. That the, the beauty and the glory of the gospel is that even though this Corinthian church and those of us in this room and other churches have failed to model the pattern of love in a mature sense, the beauty of the gospel is that God is continually maturing us. And he does not just write us off because we fail to do what we're called to do. He gives us time. And we'll see that because love is patient. Number two, the pattern of love. How do we properly use our gifts in worship to God and in worship to to one and worship with one another the the way that we do that is we are guided by the pattern of love that is set for us the pattern of love leads us and guides us in our way of thinking turn with me really quickly take a right hand turn in your bibles or just stare up at the screen to first john uh john is a good pastoral voice for us you're going to hear the echoes of what paul has said and this is what just underscores the consistency of the scriptures where where one author in 90 a.d says what another author in 60 a.d separated by miles with two different uh visions for how they're going to uh exercise the ministry that christ has given to him the consistency of the message in the gospel is 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 for us an encouragement that it is consistent through and through First John chapter 3, verses 1 through 2, uh, John says this. He says, see, see what great love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children. See what love. We can, so that means we can objectively see the love that the Father, our Father in heaven, has given to us that we should be called the children of God. Verse 2. We are God's children. What we will be has not yet been, been revealed. Paul will get to the end of the chapter and he will say, uh, there's a time coming when all will be revealed. Now things are done imperfectly, but then the perfect will come and we'll see perfectly. John says the same thing. What we will be has not yet been revealed. If you ever get discouraged about the consistency of your Christian life, fear not for when you get revealed. C.S. Lewis says, we might be tempted to worship one another because we will be so glorious because we have the glory of Christ but all of us will know who truly is king, and it will be Jesus Christ. What we will be has not yet been revealed. And we will see him when he appears, John says, we will be like him. And we will see him face to face. John then goes and explains that there's a difference between those who practice lawlessness and those who do not. And basically, the difference is that we are Christians. We have the spirit inside of us. Verse 11, the message that they have heard, that we have heard as a church, is that we should love one another. That is the mark of the church. That if we love one another, the reason we love one another, as we've addressed this at the beginning of chapter 12, is that we have the Spirit. What makes us spiritual is the Holy Spirit, nothing else. You cannot be spiritual unless you have the Holy Spirit. 
And what does that mean? That means we have verse 14 in chap, uh, chapter 3 of 1 John. We know that we have passed from death to life. Life is living according to the Spirit. Living life Spirit-empowered. And how do we live the life of the Spirit? The Spirit of God dwelling in us, manifesting and showing Jesus Christ to the world. Verse 16, here's the framework. Here's the definition of love. How do we know what love is? John tells us. John says, this is how we come to know love. How do we deeply know what love is? How do I define it? That Jesus laid his life down for us. There's your orientation, flag in the ground. How do I know that I'm loving? When I'm giving myself up sacrificially for someone else. That's your orientation. So at any point, if I'm like thinking of self, I'm not, if I'm thinking of myself, as, as hard as it might be to give something up for someone else, I know that I'm loving if I sacrifice my preferences. I do those things which benefit someone else. This is how we know what love is. Jesus. Then he goes on, he says, therefore we should also what? lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters in Christ, the church. Little children, verse 18, let us not love in word or speech, but in action and in truth. The common good, right? Paul has already told us that we are given gifts for the common good, and love is modeled by Jesus. So any deviation from this definition is not true love. So when we hear about what love is, we have to start with Jesus, This is love that he gave himself up for us. And then think about why he gave himself up for us. What what is true about Jesus? What did he say? Because anything deviating from that definition of love is not true love. And we have to orient ourselves to that. So let's turn back to 1 Corinthians. Let's see what Paul lists out. Love is modeled and defined by Jesus. And then Paul, what Paul says is the love... That is seen. See what love. Love is given to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And there are characteristics of love. Paul says that the fruit of the Spirit is, in Galatians, he writes to another church, he starts with love. Love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. It's not as if those different fruits, it's the fruit singular. The fruits of the Spirit manifest the entirety of the fruit. The crispness of the apple, the color of the apple, the taste of the apple, the juice of the apple, the seeds of the apple, it's all one apple. The fruit of an apple is an apple. So also the Spirit of God gives us a picture of who God is and what he is like. And so the pattern is, first, love is patient. Let's look through this list. The pattern of love is that love is patient. That word patient there is to bear up under provocation that means that it is not just to be patient as in I'm patiently waiting for this sermon to be over but I'm patient though somebody is calling me names someone is causing me pain it's under provocation it's it's the 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 ability to be patient and not respond in such a way that anyone else would respond it is being patient without complaint that word says without complaining it is also kind. We all know what it is to be kind. We can, we can point out kind people. They're not inconsiderate. They're not mean or cruel. We say, that was a, that was a kind old man who just told me that he, I looked nice in that outfit. Or that was a kind 
little child. We know what kindness is. Love is patient. It's insulted. It doesn't, doesn't complain. It, doesn't, it bears up under uh, problems. It's kind. Love does not envy. Look at that ne- envy. That word envy is to have an intense negative feeling over someone else's achievements or success. You can picture in the Corinthian church where people are envious of one another, and that's why there's division. I'm of Paul. I'm of Peter. I'm of Jesus. I'm of this. I'm with this guy. I'm with that guy. And Paul's like, no, we're not envious. Love is not envious. Love does not look at someone else and have this intense negative feeling about their achievements or success. In fact, the opposite of that is that they rejoice in their benefit. You're an incredibly gifted teacher, as I mop the floor, right? I love it when you, I'm just going to come back here and clean up the throw up. You're a gifted teacher. I'm never going to be there, but that's incredible. You bless me so much. And the response would, would be the same. It is blessing, not negativity. Love is not boastful. This word boastful is to be uh, someone who is self-satisfied in one's achievements. They, they're not modest or unassuming. They brag about all that they've done. They're boastful. They're not arrogant. Love is not arrogant. That word arrogant there is to be conceited, to be self-important, opinionated, egotistical, full of oneself, superior, overbearing. Here's a word I like. They have swagger. Swagger. There's an air about them where they, they seem as if they need no one else and that everyone else should orient themselves to their manhood or their womanhood, or their accomplishment. They're not humble at all, which love is. Love is humble. It's he, love is modest. Verse 5, love is not rude. This is belching at the dinner table, which is never appropriate, kids. Rudeness. We know what rudeness is. Love is not self-seeking or self-serving. That word there, self-seeking, is, is always looking for a way to be satisfied or to have our own needs met. Some of us are here, self-seeking, thinking that we're going to hear something that's going to make us feel better to get us through the rest of the week, and then we're going to come back and we're going to get a second dose and then a third dose. It's, it's all about, but the moment that I don't receive something that I feel good about, I'm just going to look for somewhere else. Or I'm going to date this person, or I'm going to, I'm going to pursue this career, or I'm going to do something that's going to be me. I deserve this, and so I'm going to suck the life out of something else until it's got nothing else to give. That's self-seeking. Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, even the Son of Man, the Son of God, did what? Did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as ransom for many. Love is not irritable. I love this word, irritable. That word there, irritable, is, is ready to blow at any given moment. You ever meet someone that's irritable? You ever, you ever walk on eggshells around somebody that eggshells, somebody you never, don't want to say the wrong thing? You, I mean, you wait until they have their first cup of coffee, maybe two. You wait until they have you know, their, their needs met, and then you talk to them. Love is not irritable, not ready to blow at any given moment. It's, it's, it's a, it can be negative or positive. That word there is, is an inward arousal, an agitation. In fact, in a good way, in Acts chapter 17, Paul is in Athens, and 
uh, he's waiting to speak to someone. And while he's there in Athens, he's, he is deeply distressed, it says. He's deeply irritated. He's agitated at seeing all of these gods, and there's even one to the unknown God. And so finally, he can't take it, and he can't take it anymore. So he says something. He's irritated so much that he needs to speak out and say something in uh, a positive way. We can be irritable towards things that need to be spoken of out loud, wrongs that need to be righted. But love does not, uh, does not negatively hold on to irritation, which is connected to the next one where it says love does not keep a record of wrongs. When we keep a, peop- a record of people's wrongs, you know what happens? This person did this and they did this. We just keep a record there. They did it again. There they did it again. Oh, man, they're starting. They're, that person really irritates me. And then what we do is we, some of us bottle it in, and if we're not careful or mature about the things that we're keeping a record of, which we ought not to keep a record of anyway, next thing you know, the person that is irritating to you because they have a long list of wrongs, they come to you, and boom, they just explode on you, and they're like, what in the world? Have you ever had that happen to you? Like, what is your deal? It's like shaking a soda bottle. You know, you ever taken a, a two-liter? Those of you who are mature have never done this. But you take a two-liter and they say, hey, you hand it to somebody, one of your friends perhaps, without them knowing you shook it, and say, oh, you want some soda? Yeah, sure. It's like everywhere, and you need somebody. What happens? You have, somebody has to clean up the, the mess, otherwise it's going to get sticky. This is that sense of keeping a record of wrongs, being irritated. This ought to point us to, we ought to have the right expectations for one another. Communication with one another is key. If something has wronged you, if there's love present, you can go to that other person and say, hey, listen, um, what you said really hurt me. Ah, and then I'm sorry, I didn't mean, you can communicate. I did not intend to do that. Okay, well, this is, this is how it made me feel. I thought you were saying this. No, now you have no record of wrong. You eliminate the record of wrong and love moves forward. Listen, let's be honest. We're all going to annoy each other. There's going to be things and flaws that come out, but the, the important thing is that we act in a manner with which the Lord himself has acted towards us. Goodness gracious, if Jesus Christ were to just keep one record of my wrongs, I would be in a deep pile of, of corn. Love finds no joy. That's happiness and well-being. It finds no joy in unrighteousness or injustice or wickedness. Love rejoices in truth because God is truth. When things are true, we rejoice in that. This also means that love does not allow others to live in a lie. When we call out that which is not truth, we are actually loving others by saying, that is not true. We rejoice in what is true. We do not tolerate things that God has clearly said, this is not true, this is a lie. The very beginning of man's fall was birthed in a lie. Did God really say, he's holding out on you? He has more for you. He hasn't given you everything that you need. He knows more, and he's holding out on you. Don't you just, don't you want a little taste of the glory? There's a Nacho Libre reference, if anybody... Love rejoices in truth. 
And so we get irritated by falsehood because we love truth. We want our kids to know the truth about gender and sexuality. We want the, the world to know about the truth of God's love and his desire to reconcile us back to himself. We want people to know about the truth of Jesus Christ. We want people to know about the truth of our own sin so that we might have freedom in life and joy and delight. Love bears all things. That is to keep confident, to cover or to pass over in silence. It is a love that throws the cloak over something that is displeasing in one another. It bears the ugliness. It says, hey, listen, I'm going to cover over. I'm only going to see the best in you. Love bears all things. Love believes all things that are true. That is the belief that Paul doesn't need to expound on that because we believe what is true. If we rejoice in what is true, then we believe what is true. Love hopes all things. It hopes in the promises of God that the hope of our future is secure, that God has promised us, and so we hope that. And we endure all things. Endurance is to hold our ground. It is to maintain a belief of course of action in the face of opposition. That we will endure any slander that comes against us because we will trust the Lord Jesus Christ and what he says. Love does all of this. Is there any hint of sexuality in this? Do you see any sexual orientation? Do you see any sexual practice in this? Because it's not there. Therefore, love is not rooted in how we feel. It is not rooted in our sexuality or what we do with our bodies sexually. Love is rooted in the action of God-like character towards one another. Therefore, any definition that we hold to love that is deviant of that is a false love. However, do we just go into a battle punching and just call people out on stuff? No. We bear all things. We endure all things. We speak the truth in love and grace. And over time, we trust that the Holy Spirit is going to do the work. That's how we, it, we endure the falseness of our culture and the lies that are spouse. But we need not be panicky because we have the truth of the gospel. I don't have to panic when somebody says, of course things are going to fall apart, gang. When we erode the truth of what God has created, what else do you think is going to happen? Do you think that it's going to just build itself back up together? We were warned about this, that falseness begets death, but truth brings life. And so the ship might be on fire, but it, like God has promised us rescue. We just endure to the end, which leads us to the permanence of love. Love never ends. It never fails. It never drops out. Joshua, in chapter 23, verse 14, he says, The promises of God, Israel, has never failed. Everything was fulfilled for you. Not one promise has dropped out. That's the word that uh, Paul uses here. Jesus says, It is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke or letter of the law to drop out. Love is never going to fall away. It's, not, it's like Jenga. I hate that game. But Jenga, it's like you see it tottering, and you just you know that the only piece that you can take is you're going to lose. And you, you just you take that piece out, and it drops together. Love is never going to be that way. Love is never going to drop away. Paul then says prophecies, tongues, knowledge, all of it is going to drop out. It is going to go away. And what he's saying here to the leaders of the church in Corinth, and he's saying to us today, is that if our life is dependent... 
If our source of value or significance is rooted in the things that we do for God or the ways that we are gifted by God or the things that people say about our gifts and are being used by God, how much we're able to accomplish in our lives, if it's only the gifts and it's our specific usefulness for God that we love and not the God who gifts us himself that we love, then we're missing the point. That's his point to the Corinthian church. Guys, you're missing the point. You're gifted, yes, but if you have not love, none of it's for any value. We have to hold on to our gifts and our usefulness and our service very loosely. In the end, he says, for verse 9, he says, just like John said, we know in part now, we prophesy in part, we speak in tongues in part, we we don't do things perfectly. We're not living in the age. Again, the Corinthian church made a failure in thinking that the end of the age was upon them, that they had an over-realized eschatology, that they were thinking that the new had come and that they were living in the age of the kingdom that was fully consummated, which is not true. We live in the now and the not yet, that Jesus Christ, when he returns, all things will be restored, but it's not that time yet. So... We know in part, he says, we, 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 we are children, speaking like children, growing in maturity, but when we become a man, just like it, it happens when a, woman, when a girl becomes a woman and matures, and a boy becomes a man and he matures, we know when they've matured, so also now we are children growing into maturity, but then when he comes back, full maturity will come. That's what he means, that when the perfect comes, when the perfect restoration of all things, when all things are restored, then we will see him face to face. John said the same thing. We know now dimly what it is to be like Jesus. We see Jesus dimly. He's living through us. And as you love me and I love you, like, it's kind of messed up a little bit. We're like, ah, you kind of love me. I, I see Jesus in you. We, we grow more mature. But then in that day, when he returns and our bodies are resurrected, or, or as Paul says to the Thessalonians, that our bodies will be gloriously transformed, we will then see face to face. We will be what we were intended to be, and we will know the love of Jesus perfectly. Man, what a day that will be. No more insecurity, no more self-aggrandizement, no more. We will know who is a king, and we will know who is ours, and we will live with him, and we will feel, as Jonathan Edwards, as if we are the most important thing in all of the world. Heaven is a place where people love each other, not holding out for the next person. You ever have somebody talk through you at a party? You ever know when they're like not paying attention, like, hey, yeah, talking, in the, and then their eyes start to dart, and they're like, hey, great, great to catch up. Hey, Joe, John Smith, I heard about your book. I want to talk to you about it. How do you feel in that moment? You don't feel loved, do you? We will be in heaven with the most gifted people of our age, and it will feel as if we are the most important person in value to Christ, because the Christ-likeness in them will be fully reflected. And as we glory in their good deeds in this world, they will also feel like they are loved and fully loved. But until that time, let's orient ourselves properly to the way in which God has structured and ordered his church using our gifts accordingly. Not for ourselves, but for the common good, but in love for the common good 
of the world that they might witness Jesus Christ amongst us. Isaac Watts in his hymn, Sweet is the work, my God, my King, says this, Then shall I see and hear and know all I desired or wished below, and every power find sweet employ in that eternal world of joy. That is what we're looking to. If your expectation is to find the perfection of Christ in this church, then you're going to be let down. I just needed to let you know that. But if you have hope for maturity and a desire to be loved and the endurance and the desire to grow with other people, then you found the right place. We are filled with a bunch of flawed but growing believers in Christ. We are not what we used to be. We are not what we want to be. But by God's grace, we will be. And we are growing to be into what we are called to be. One final note, and then I want to say here that we, we, we talked about the differences between some of the approaches to this text. And one of the things that we need to understand here is that in this, there is no warrant. Or Paul's timeline is the end of the age. And so we don't find in here any warrant in the text or the scripture or the structure of the, the narrative or what he's saying. The context here is he's pointing to the reality of the Corinthian church being gifted by the Spirit and using their gifts in love. And at some point it will be perfected and, and all of the gifts, I will be out of a job. <laughs> I will, I don't know what I'm going to do in eternity. I'm just going to be like, hey, remember when you used to teach? Yeah, all right. I'm just going to go fishing. I don't, actually, I wouldn't go fishing. I hate fishing. I don't know what I'll do. But I'll be fine. I'll be content. You can't argue for the cessation of gifts, uh, especially the miraculous ones here. I will argue that I think that you can see it in ways over time that we ought to hold loosely. And so just as a point of reference, I hold very loosely to any interpretation that says, well, see here, this means that this particular gift will stop I don't think that's here. But I do think it can be argued for, though. If you want to leave, leave with this, leave with confidence that love is the priority, right? Love is the priority. And we need to remember that love is, is way greater than our gifts. And so if you can endure uh, loving and being loved without the expectation of, you know, if you just lower the bar, say, love is going to be my, love is going to be my standard then everything else is a bonus. Because God will use you, he has gifted you, we'll all fall into our places, and if we can fall into the places that God has structured and ordered and love one another, we are doing what God has called us to do. Love is a priority, love is a pattern, and so we must allow that to lead us. Whenever you feel yourself, think of this list. If you feel yourself drifting from the way in which love, just go back to the list, repeat it to yourself, and say, this is, this is love's pattern. Love is not irritable. And so even though I feel irritable, God, give me the strength by the power of your Holy Spirit not to be so irritable. Help me to grow more mature. Confess to him that you have a record of wrongs against people. It may be even in this family that you, there's something that someone has said unbeknownst to them that has offended you, or they've done something that you're just holding on to it. You need to take that record of wrongs and say, God, if you have kept no record of my wrongs, how can I keep a record of wrongs for someone else? Father, forgive me for this sin. And if it happens the next day, then you do it again. For God is faithful and just 
to forgive us our sins and, can, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is the grace that is there. You have the freedom to say, I need your forgiveness. I need your forgiveness. I need your forgiveness. Because it's all cleansed anyway, but that forgiveness is meant to mature us, to encourage us to endure. This is the pattern. It guides us in our way of thinking. Finally, because love and not our spiritual gifts are permanent, then however God has gifted you, however God has used you, or is currently not using you, as far as you can tell, hold on to your leadership and your service very loosely. Enjoy what God is doing in your life right now. That he has loved you and secured you in his son. And seek instead to strengthen your relationship with him and with one another through love, rather than seeking to posture yourself for that next opportunity or to complain about the opportunities that you don't have Love one another, for they will know that we are Christians by our love. The sermon you've just listened to is a presentation of Church Newtown Square. To find out more about our church, check out churchnsq.org. That's C-H-V-R-C-H-N-S-Q.org. You are welcome to copy and distribute this sermon to others as long as you do not do it for commercial purposes or alter, transform, or build upon this talk in any way.